Welcome back to Search for DOS. In this episode, we meet David Bernstein. David is the founder and CEO of the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values, which helps Jewish organizations and individuals hold constructive conversations about critical social justice. David is the past president and CEO of the Jewish Council for Public Affairs and former executive director of the David Project. David is also the author of the recent book, Woke Antisemitism, How a Progressive Ideology Harms Jews. As many listeners know, since 2014, I've been concerned about progressive thought and the negative impact it's having on our sense-making institutions. Now, pointing out flaws of this school of thought pre-107 was difficult. Criticism of social justice theory, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and indigenous land recognition was oftentimes met with accusations of racism and hate. However, since 10-7, it has become easier. The reaction progressives had to the horrors Hamas unleashed on the Jewish people have awoken American liberals. As a result, many liberals are starting to understand the negative implications of progressive ideology. As you will soon hear, David is a liberal who has been thinking about this ideology for way longer than I have, and he has the scars to prove it. I respect David for the decades he has spent attempting to educate the liberal world of the harms progressive ideology presents. When I look at David's career, I think of the quote from John Ruskin, the greatest thing the human soul ever does in this world is to see something and tell what it saw in a plain way. Hundreds of people can talk for one who can think, but thousands can think for one who can see. To see clearly is poetry, prophecy, and religion, all in one. In this episode, we cover the difference between liberals and progressives, the reasons why liberals went along with progressive thought for so long, why the current social justice movement isn't an extension of Martin Luther King's civil rights movement, what is the best path forward with regards to DEI, why the Jewish people returning to their ancestral homeland doesn't meet the criteria of progressives who promote indigenous groups reclaiming their land, David's views on Israel's war against Hamas and the concept of just war theory, the difference between anti-Semitism on the left and right in which form David believes is the greatest threat? And finally, how best to speak to liberals about why progressive thought is a threat to the American Jewish community? Now, I give you David Bernstein. David Bernstein, welcome to Search for DOS. Great to be with you. I was thrilled when I met you because I finally met an individual who had been spending decades trying to understand what was happening in the progressive community and what it meant for the American Jewish community. And you are an expert in it. And for many years, you were the Cassandra 
You were the person with a prophecy and no one was believing it. And um, uh, unfortunately, we are now at a point where it is so clear that uh, people uh, are finally listening. I would like to start off by understanding from your experience, why did you start paying attention to this? Yeah, so it goes back actually 20 some years ago, I was working for the American Jewish Committee and I was in Washington and I was part of this leadership group called Leadership Washington and we we're having multicultural day. This is in, I think, 1999. And I was excited about it. I did intergroup relations as part of my portfolio in the Jewish world. So, you know, I was used to multicultural settings and I thought this would be fun. Um, from the get-go, I realized though, this was a completely different ball game. The guy who led off the session started by saying, racism equals prejudice plus power. I said, wait a second, what's that about? And I challenged him at the end of it. But then we went into this session, which could be best described as DEI training. Although in 1999, there was no term DEI. And uh, we watched this film called The Color of Fear, in which four men went to this retreat together. One was a total nitwit white guy, and three others were ethnic Black, Asian, and Latinos who are all very well trained in multicultural discourses, as we would have called it in those days. And they browbeated the nitwit white guy for like a few days until he took responsibility for his own white supremacy. And I thought, this is, this is terrible. And I, and I challenged the facilitator at the time, and I experienced a horrible backlash from the other people in the group who, who wanted it to be true, needed it to be true, could not stand that I didn't go along with the way that it was framed. And so I started paying attention there. It was until a couple of years later, I wrote an opinion piece for the Washington Jewish Week, which is the, the Jewish newspaper in the Washington DC area, saying that um, we have a problem if this idea that racism equals prejudice plus power gains ground, because Jews are viewed as a powerful group. And that means that we can't be victims of racism. And that means that groups that are traditionally viewed as powerless are, can't be guilty of, of racism or anti-Semitism because they don't have any power. So I really have been wa uh, watching this for quite, quite some years and continue to write about it uh, here and there, even though I was part of a liberal Jewish world. I was part of the center-left Jewish community that was sort of going along with it silently. Why did they go along with it? And, and, and that is a question that I really want us to explore because individuals who sit outside of the liberal world look at liberals and say why did you sign up for this progressive ideology what is your best answer for why liberals not progressives signed up for this yeah now i think sign up can mean different things it can mean go along with it or it can mean get behind it so i'm gonna go talk about the people first that i think um went along with it no one wants to be called a racist. Being a racist is one of the most horrible things you can be called. That's number one. So if someone is calling you a racist because, or privileged or something else, because you're not accepting their point of view, it's very easy to, to bully somebody into going along. Um, the other aspect of it is sort of the, it's a Trojan horse. It's framed in the traditional civil rights movement. And here we are in Martin Luther King Jr. Day and um, people, 
feel very psychologically connected, particularly liberal Jews, to the civil rights era and to the Jewish role in civil rights. It was a proud moment in the American Jewish community's history. And so we want to be aligned. And if people are telling us this is the newest iteration of the civil rights movement, it's very hard to resist that, even if there's some aspect of it that gives us pause. So I think a lot of people sort of went along with it, even though it didn't sound exactly like the civil rights of their youth. And they've been told that this is the next iteration of civil rights. So you should be for it. And you want to desperately remain aligned with the groups like NAACP and the Urban League and all the good guys who are fighting the good fight. And so that's the psychological pressure that came to bear on many American Jews that many folded to. And some became true believers and some just sort of became, you know, went along with it. And what's the best argument for why it isn't the next iteration of the civil rights movement or why it shouldn't be? Yeah. So Martin Luther King articulated a vision of a colorblind society, as we know from his various uh, speeches and the like, a, a society that was based on one's our co common humanity. This ideology separates people into groups and, and makes statements about power, who has power and who doesn't. Interestingly, I think you could argue that it is, um, it is a, uh, it is a legacy of the civil rights movement, but not the first iteration of the civil rights movement under, under Martin Luther King. It was sort of a, it is sort of the inheritor of Malcolm X in the black power movement, which started to see things very differently. It kicked out a lot of the whites who were involved in Jews who were involved in the civil rights movement and claimed um, that uh, special uh, role for, for, for blacks and, and it had a different vision of America, a separatist vision in a way. And I think um, it, I think that we're, we're seeing the effects of that years later. That became the dominant understanding in many quarters of what the civil rights movement was and should be. And then of course you had, you had the, um, Black power movement turned into what you might call critical race theory with Derek Bell, who was actually a civil rights activist from the 1960s and was one of the main lawyers that was b behind Brown versus education and desegregation, later turned on desegregation. And he said that desegregation was not producing the kind of equality that it promised and that it was there was something much deeper in American society, something much more systemic. And they drew on postmodern ideology, which viewed um, which viewed inequality as as sort of ingrained in the very fabric of society. So it borrowed that lens and applied it to race and racism. And it viewed racism as a permanent feature of a white dominated American society and therefore not ameliorative to changes in the law like the 1964 Civil Rights Act. So again, it was that ideological, that those larger ideological trends and ideological shifts that are now being incorporated into what now is calling itself civil rights, but is actually something quite different. Oftentimes in conversations, especially when discussing the left, I find that liberal and progressive are conflated. What is your best description for the difference between someone who's liberal and someone who's progressive. Yeah. So I realize that what I'm about to say represents my own perspective. I think these terms are used interchangeably, not very helpfully interchangeably, but they are used interchangeably. Um, I've always believed that um, we can define liberal in a number of ways, but in the American political context, I viewed a progressive 
as somebody who has a theory about why there's disparity in the world. It wasn't just somebody who believed we had to do better to help people. It's that the haves were causing the conditions of the have-nots. That's the fundamental distinction. Whereas the traditional American liberal wanted to help people as well, but they had no theory. They were, they were prescriptive, but not descriptive. They weren't saying that, that rich people stole from poor people or white people stole from black people. They just said, look, we, we don't have enough healthcare to go around, so we have to do better. That was what the, uh, the traditional liberal did. Now, liberal can also mean something entirely different. And um, a classical liberal is one who believes in the free ex exchange of ideas, individualism, the, the rule of law, and so forth. So I consider, I always said, and I said this in the uh, intro to my book, I consider myself both a traditional political liberal in the sense that I believe that government had a role in helping people, and a classical liberal. I believe deeply in the free exchange of ideas. And until recently, those two, those two schools of liberalism went hand in hand. And it's not until more recent years when, when political liberalism started to be affected by the larger progressive milieu that we started to see a shift in that. Now, a lot of political liberals really don't have a strong commitment to the free exchange of ideas. Now, that's an excellent description. It's the best one I've heard. And I think especially the distinction of prescriptive versus descriptive. And I'm glad you outlined that in your book. Let's talk a bit about your book. So you wrote that last year or it was published last last year, obviously right now in this 2022 at the end of 2022. Ah, this is true. We uh, we were in the early days of 24 here. So that's a good point. And tell us about that writing experience and what it, what is your intended goal of writing the book? What if it's successful, what does it do? So what I hoped first and foremost from writing the book is that the American Jewish leadership class, civic leadership class would read the book and understand the problem. They'd be able to connect the dots between an ideology that's been gaining ground in the Jewish world, outside of the Jewish world, and the rise in anti-Semitism that we're experiencing and the rise of illiberalism that they may be sensing but can't quite put their finger on. That's what I wanted to happen. Now, of course, I also want to place woke anti-Semitism as part of the sort of the um, panoply of social ills in the larger sense. Um, and I think that's happened, whether it was my book alone or not. Um, you know, obviously, October 7th um, helped frame that. So a lot of people who weren't talking about this anti-Semitic variant as a result of left-wing ideology now are, even people who've never, who might've even denied it before, who are part of the sort of classical liberal camp. And it's been fascinating for me to see that. Um, I think many uh, fellow classical liberals, sort of anti-woke classical liberals like me, were not seeing anti-Semitism as a major problem until October 7th, when all of a sudden they started to see people you know, share hang glider uh, uh, memes that were celebrating the, you know, the, the martyrdom of the Hamas fighters who had just perpetrated a massacre against Israelis. And I think for many of them, they saw how scary this was. So I think that has really become part and parcel of people's understanding of what's wrong with this ideology. And it seems like the ideology has really uh, put itself in a position to be durable in in quite a few ways, one of those being the DEI systems that exist in many of our sense-making institutions. I heard you once describe that as hard ideology. Are you able to explain what that means and whether or not 
the the existence of DEI is a significant threat to to the Jewish people. Yeah. So I'm going to I divide up sort of wokeism or if you'd rather critical social justice ideology into two basic camps, although I think they're overlapping. One is sort of this very radical decolonial camp that wants to sort of overthrow the American system that believes that Westernism and Americanism are pervasively racist institutions. They're settler colonialist states. They need to be dismantled. Um, they, 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 they refer to America as Turtle Island. If you hear that frame, you know who you're talking about. These are extremists. There's another form of wokeism um, that is uh, less extreme, but still buys into this oppressed versus oppressor narrative that still divides people into affinity groups, that still, um, that still tells people exactly who has power based on their ethnicity or their race or their identity. Um, and um, and th those people may, by the way, be very well be capitalists. They may be trying to reconcile this shift in understanding of power and who has it and who doesn't into sort of the market economy, into the corporate sector and the like. Um, so I think most of DEI belongs to that, but it can be crazy. I always tell people when I talk to them and they say, can we change this DEI program so that it, it includes Jews? And I'm not a fan of that in general, but the one thing I always ask them is, uh, is it batshit crazy? Does it, does it pass the batshit crazy test? And very often they look at me and they say, no, it doesn't. In other words, this DEI can be sort of a mild form of it that, you know, we have to do better to include more people, more voices, and we have to do better to diversify. And some of that I might even agree with. I mean, I, you know, I don't want to be part of an all white male institution that's dominated by people wearing Brooks Brothers suits. I mean, I think, you know, companies benefit from a certain level of diversity inclusion. Unfortunately, this is not just, that's not what this is generally. It's, it's an ideology pretending to be that. And it, um, it's an ideology that says, I'm going to tell you based on your identity, how much power or how much oppression you have. And you therefore then have to make space for other people, which might mean even losing your job under extreme circumstances. And you have to make sure you bring people in, even though if they have, if they're not qualified on paper, because that itself is an expression of white supremacy. And we're gonna divide you up into your affinity group based on what we think are the racial categories that matter. So if you're Jewish, you don't get a Jewish affinity group. You're part of the white affinity group and you're white because your whiteness gives you privilege and so forth. So that's what I think is happening in most places. Is it the most extreme form of this decolonialist ideology? Mostly not, but there are certainly examples of it. I have a friend of mine who worked for a human service organization who went through a whole training session on decolonizing data and indigenous ways of knowing. Now, no one from corporate told them to then embrace de uh, decolonizing data because they have to be able to show they have to be able to show po uh, positive progress to their stakeholders and and you're just you know indigenous ways no of knowing is not going to cut it but um but that is out there those extremist views are out there i mean you have uh, you have people in social work school especially at columbia university which is just batshit crazy who uh, are talking about decolonizing social work now and what they mean by that is not helping their clients develop the agency to go and make it in society, but rather to try to tear down the very structures of society that are holding them down. That's what, well, yeah. It, well, this is interesting because there says to seem to be an increased level of scrutiny on DEI now, 
and higher levels of interest in in disbanding it, of uh, of amending it. What is the best way to have a conversation around either amending it or disbanding it? Because oftentimes individuals who are not receptive to that or haven't even thought about it immediately view that as, are, are you racist? Are you against diversity? Do you not want progress? What is the most succinct way of saying we should not have DEI in its current form because of this reason? Yeah, I mean, there, there are a few different arguments. One is that DEI doesn't work. There have been numbers of studies done by Harvard and others that show that DEI programs are not producing greater understanding, less bias, or any of the other promises that it told people, told corporate leaders that they would get by doing. In fact, it, it even showed greater tensions and greater resentment. So um, so that that's number one. Um, number two, I, I think I would make a plain argument that viewpoint diversity has to be part of what we mean by diversity. And if you have a corporate program or a university program that says there's only one right way to think about the world, you are by definition stifling viewpoint diversity. And, and so you are pre preventing people from actually representing their authentic selves. The other one I, I always cite the sort of the affinity groups and the like. I mean, I think, the, I mean, on the face of it, affinity groups divide people into groups. I was talking to this Chinese American woman who was who was apoplectic that she was part of a Asian affinity group where there were two Iranian women in it who she had no cultural affinity with at all. Yet she was told she's Asian and therefore that's the right affinity group. And somehow that's a grievance against our societies being part of this Asian affinity group, which was supposedly oppressed. I mean, so she didn't believe any of it. And if, you know, there are numerous examples of Jews who've been shoved into the white affinity group, even though they didn't feel, feel like they belonged there. And why should we agree with somebody else's definition of who we are? So um, I think that those are some of the arguments I, I would make. I, in terms of whether we should amend DEI or get rid of it, I'm open to both, by the way. Um, I think in red states where you can get rid of it cleanly, where the governor can issue an executive order as the governor in Oklahoma did or pass legislation, fine, go ahead and do that. I don't think DEI is bringing anything to the table. Uh, in a lot of other places, though, I think DEI is going to be a lot harder to sort of outright ban. And I think that there are diversity programs if that non-crazy diversity programs that would be fine like let's let's um have a chief cooperation officer instead of a chief dei officer that comes out of it you know um you know let's let's talk about prickly issues in society in an open way if that's your model of diversity if it expands the scope of human empathy by all means i'm all in but that's not most of what dei is today there are some dei outfitters a few like you can count them on one hand that do that work um, but, um, but that's not mostly what the EI is, but if you can turn it into that, I'm all in. In, in terms of the, the extreme form that you mentioned that you occasionally see, um, or please quantify how often do you see it, the settler colonial, um, element. It, when I've sp spoken to people who uh, have that point of view of the world, I have helped They've helped me understand what they meant in terms of the indigenous groups taking back their land. And then after they explain that to me, I say to them, well, explain to me how the 
Jewish people taking back the land of Israel and then resurrecting their ancient language is not a manifestation of that. Is and 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 I've oftentimes find found myself when I'm in that conversation, it feels wildly disingenuous that this is not a an embodiment. This is not a success story, right? Can you to me? I don't see a difference between that and the Seminoles taking back the Panhandle of Florida and resurrecting their language. I don't think we can have that in modern times. It happened, you know, and, and when I think we're seeing the implications of an indigenous group taking back its land. Um, so if a progressive wants that, how do they not look at Israel and say, wow, there it is, it happened. Yeah. You know, look, the problem with this ideology in general is it puts people in categories in the most easiest way possible. So they've already decided that the North oppresses the South, that Western imperialism is responsible for the deprivations of the Muslim and Arab world, that Muslims and Arabs are brown and that Jews and Europeans are white. And, and so they shoehorn that, that entire understanding of settler colonialism into this preordained racialized framework that colorizes the Middle East and colorizes the people of the Middle East. So no matter how brown are Jews, and I think that they have this view of like very, very white Jews controlling very, very brown Palestinians, they've never set foot in the area, they're still going to see Israel in that manner. And many of them would probably argue, well, okay, so there were Jews there, but those aren't the same people anymore. And the Jews came in and displaced the existing indigenous population, the Palestinians. So now Jews are properly viewed as the settler colonialists and Palestinians as the indigenous people. I mean, it's, it's, not, like, it's not logical. So if you're looking for some logical argument, you're not going to defeat them with logic because they didn't come by it logically. And, um, and so I, I don't get, I don't worry about that too much. I, what I'm trying to do is protect sort of mainstream moderates from buying into an ever more extreme version of this ideology. And I worry that the soft woke are susceptible to becoming like the hard woke, you know, and that the classical moderate liberals are susceptible of becoming like the soft woke in that they're all moving in that direction, that that's the gravitational pull and that we have to pull in the other direction. So I don't worry too much about the extremists. I just, I just try to, if they're really extreme and I can prove that they're really extreme, I want to point that out to people. Yeah, they just issued a meme that celebrated murder. How do you feel about that? And that's a way of getting, you know, the, the crazies and the ethnic studies professors from California from getting into the K through 12 school system. Um, there are other aspects of this that are also crazy that aren't really the settler colonialist lens. There's a framework called white supremacy culture. It was devised by this woman named Tima Okun. Um, and uh, she's a professor at Duke, I believe. And it, it holds that the values and norms of our American society are white supremacy values and that we're imposing them on people of color. So values like being on, on time to work or school is a white supremacy value. And um, now you could say, okay, she's a quack and this is quackery and we shouldn't take it seriously. But then, then all of a sudden, my kid's school system is training teachers in white supremacy culture. And uh, the National Education Association, the country's larger teachers union, is spreading white supremacy culture. And the New York City schools 
are using the white supremacy culture framework and it is bad shit crazy and it is teaching kids stuff that is absolutely ridiculous and yet that's the direction they've gone so so again I, that's why i think you know maybe the people who want to tear down western societies are on the fringe of this movement but there's a more there's a gray area like white supremacy culture that doesn't necessarily say we've got to we've uh, um, you know that uh indigenous americans have to replace you know whites and take over or whatever or, or tear down our democratic economic system instead what they what but they're but they're advocating things that are just plain absurd and um and unfortunately that's part of this mix that's helpful because it's it's hard to know how much attention to pay to the extreme elements of this thinking and what i hear from you is it, sure they're extreme but they're bleeding into the more mainstream elements of this thinking that then actually go into very important things like our school systems yeah uh, let me just throw in one more example of that that just that i think might be helpful um, and I think it was 2020, maybe it was 2019. I, I was head of another mainstream Jewish organization and we took a, a delegation to visit the US-Mexican border and to see some of the problems immigrants were having under then the Trump administration and what was wrong with our system. And you know, there were a lot of things that were, that were wrong and dysfunctional in our, in our system. But I, the people who were taking us around, these are Jewish people involved in the Tucson Jewish community and the like, I realized as they were talking, blamed America for all the problems of the Latin American countries that fed our the, the system. So I came there with a the mindset of how do we fix this very prickly challenging situation in a humane way? And they went along with that, of course, and that's how they sucked us in. But then they said, well, it's, it's United States um, imperialist economic and uh, political processes that are leading to Venezuela and El Salvador and other countries uh, pushing people out into Mexico who are then coming to our borders. And I'm like, wait a second. So you can see that's the most extreme wing trying to talk to very empathetic liberals who are just trying to figure out how to fix something. That That's another good example. Before we head to Israel, I want to ask one more question on on, on, on this theme here. And I want to understand what is, what are the core reasons for why this has picked up so much steam and recent in recent weeks, there's been a lot of conversation about foreign monies going into institutions of higher education. The Qatari money has gotten um, a lot of attention. Can you talk about what is fueling this and how important the foreign sources are in that, uh, in that growth? Yeah. So one of the things I always tell my uh, Jewish business friends, some of whom give funding to me and so, so forth. Yes, it's important to understand the foreign sources of money. That is an absolute factor. But follow the money alone won't get you there. That a lot of this is homegrown ideology that is spread over time. There's a process that uh, philosopher Peter Bogosian calls idea laundering. When you have um, when you have leftist academic departments that publish each other and create the sense that there's this sort of echo chamber of ideas in this field that that get laundered into what is now viewed as the truth. And, um, and so I think that's a very powerful force. Um, I think that some there's also generational change, you know, the baby boomers have been in power longer than any generation. And so it's not surprising that 
um, younger people are looking for a way to game the system and try to break through and gain some of the their piece of the the pie. And I think some of that, you know, so I think there are generational changes and factors like that. I think you could look at probably 10 or so factors that I could go into. Those are some of them that pop into mind right away. Um, but I, that's what I think, why I think um, this ideology has gained ground. And I think the people who are promoting it, um, you know, they understood that the power of these ideas, um, they called it the long march through institutions. And it's been a remarkably successful march through institutions. Uh, they went in institute and they, and they understood something. They understood that they, they couldn't win in the larger society. But they could win in smaller institutions where they where their their claims of racism and so forth would would dominate small groups of people who are progressive leaning and it would shut down the people who are the critics and it would empower the radical voices within those institutions and it worked over and over and they kept on doing it and doing it because the rational people just shut down in the face of those charges and now that there's a war going on between Israel and Hamas, what is that? What is that thinking? How does that thinking approach it? How are the how is the progressive world framing up this conflict? Yeah, so you can see if the progressive world is bought into woke ideology that they're going to see the world through this lens of the oppressed versus the oppressor, and that they're going to see Israel as the oppressor state, and they're going to not see any nuance in it at all. Now, I mean, I might be talking about sort of the um, more extreme woke element, but even I think among mainstream progressives, there is a greater tendency to see Israel and the Palestinians in that manner, that Israel is the more powerful actor, Palestinians are the weaker actor, that makes Israel morally culpable and the Palestinians morally innocent. So I think that thinking has gained a lot of ground. You're seeing it in the data as well, by the way. We're seeing it in the way that in attitudes of Democrats toward Israel. Um, for a long time, Israel enjoyed a significant advantage, even among Democrats. Um, but in, in 2023, for the first time, more Democrats were sympathetic toward Palestinian cause than they were is the Israeli cause. And that's um, and so so you see the the moderates losing ground in the larger sort of Democratic Party politics. So I think that that's where um, where you're seeing a major shift. If you were speaking to a progressive and they'd say, yes, you are seeing a major shift, but that is the result of Israel's actions. It's the result of Israel's increasingly aggressive posture in the uh, in the West Bank and its uh, hard right government. That's the reason. It's not because we are just, you know, we have this kind of anti-Semitic, anti-Zionist view. What would be your response there? Yeah, well, obviously, I challenge them on the facts. You know, Israel just got attacked and had its citizens murdered. I'd say, imagine if that happened to the United States or any Western country. Do you think we'd sit back and just take it on the chin? Wouldn't we try to do everything we could to disempower the group that just murdered our citizens and make sure that they weren't able to do it again? And this is a group that says it's going to do it again. It says it's going to do it again multiple times. Um, you know, I mean, look, I can make those arguments. I probably wouldn't waste a lot of time doing it unless I felt there were moderates listening in and I was sort of demonstrating to them, which really goes to my sort of, sort of the, my strategic orientation on all of this. I think this is mostly about getting moderates to speak up, center left to center right people, the, the people within the 35 yard lines 
of the two-party system who you know, don't want radicalism on the far right. They don't want radicalism on the far left. And we've got to get moderates to, to say their piece. You know, there's the old uh, saying, never wrestle with a pig because you'll get dirty and the pig likes it. Moderates tend to avoid wrestling with the pig. They don't want to get dirty. So we've got to get them to be dirty because in, in not getting dirty, they're ceding the floor to the radicals in either side, on either side of the political spectrum. And so one of the things that I've learned in, in trying to oppose this ideology is I call it expanding the scope of the referendum. And what I mean by that is that you realize that these ideologies and ideas are extremely unpopular. Okay, If you actually ask people what they believe, it's actually a small percentage of people. It's a growing percent, but it's a small percent. So for example, if 90 Columbia professors come out with a letter that blames Israel entirely for the, ma the mass murder of its own citizens, um, you can think easily that that represents the Columbia campus until a Jewish professor comes, organizes another letter and gets like 500 signatures. And you realize, okay, you just exposed them for being a minority view on their own campus. That's expanding the scope of the referendum. I think that's what we have to do. But you can only do that if you can find a way of giving the moderates courage, courage enough to go out there and speak their minds. I think that's the, that's the, the fight we're in and less about trying to convince progressives that they're wrong. Well, I think you're right to focus on the moderates. It does seem like that is the silent majority and they're the ones who are uh, more open to, they're, they're more open-minded. I'm, I'm interested to know what the argument you would make to them in terms of what's at stake. Because I think to get someone to take action, they have to feel like something significant, significant um, enough is at stake for them to take action. What is that argument? Yeah. Yeah, so it depends on who I'm talking to, but if it's the mainstream Jewish community, I'm trying to get them to utter the words that there's an ideology that divides the world into oppressed and oppressors, and Jews are being labeled as an oppressor. And the problem is not just that Jews are being labeled the oppressor, it's the, ideo the simplistic ideology itself. Now, I just heard Rabbi Joshua Davidson, who is one of the most powerful progressive reform rabbis in the United States, uttered those words at a sermon in his New York Manhattan synagogue, Emmanuel. Okay. And if he can say it, I think others can say it as well. Um, I think a lot of people are scared to say it. Some will say, some will say, yes, Jews are being viewed as the oppressor and that's a problem. But then their answer is, let's get them to view Jews as the oppressed as well. And I'm saying, no, that's not going to work. We're going to be viewed as the oppressor. The problem is an ideology that, that defines the world that way, that's simplistic. And I think, I think a lot of people are starting to take the plunge on this. The, um, you know, um, right after I think I spoke to you and you, you heard me speaking a few weeks ago, um, the former CEO of the American Jewish Community, Committee and the former CEO of the ADL both came out with statements saying that they thought the DEI was just flawed and could not be fixed in the sense that it could, it could be used to help Jews in reduce anti-Semitism. And, um, and I think that was sort of a powerful admission. And I think it reflects the thinking of increasing majorities. Now, the problem, of course, is that if you're a Jewish organization that's been building bridges to other ethnic and minority communities for many years, and you have your relationships with the head of the NAACP and so forth, you're desperately afraid of losing those relationships. 
being viewed as part of the Ron DeSantis, Chris Rufo school of American politics on the wrong side of the cultural war divide. And so you're even if you know it's a problem, you may not be willing to pay the price and go through the sort of repositioning required of you because in, and I have to say, I think um, w those of us who are opposed to this ideology and think that the Jewish community must go through such a transition have to at least acknowledge the trade-off involved with that. We are, we are probably going to be cutting ties with certain organizations, not because we want to, but because they're going to see us a certain way in a different way. And they're not going to work with those institutions if they do what I'm suggesting. That's why I think it's so hard for me and others like me to break through in the Jewish world because they're, they're scared to reposition ourselves in that way. Mm. That that's something you mentioned when I heard you speak a few weeks ago about engaging with groups that want to engage with us and to stop making excuses and um, signing up for thinking that we we know is just wrong. And, you know, it's antithetical to the the state of being Jewish, questioning, questioning everything. And that is something that the alarm bells rang for me uh, long after you, 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 you started, you spotted this uh, in the nineties. For me, it was 2016 and, and I was on campus in grad school and I just felt like the illiberal turn of this left world made conversations not interesting. It just was when yeah. so many, so many ideas were shut down when whole worlds were simplified down to uh, frameworks that were so simple and also seemed wrong. So I, I, I appreciate you helping push the Jewish community toward groups that are uh, interested in diversity of viewpoint, interested in having debates, interested in having us in the room. So I, 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 I want to ask uh, a few more questions on, on Israel. Um, and then we'll take it home. So uh, on Israel and the war, I, I've, I've seen you talk about, write about the just war theory. Could you explain what that concept means? Yeah, so just war theory has been around a long time. It's sort of part of the Western liberal moral tradition. And it was this idea that wars were going to be fought. Wars were going to be fought and that some wars were absolutely justified. So in other words, you were right to fight the war. That was one category of just war theory, that you had a right to fight the war. Somebody invaded, somebody posed an unacceptable threat, what have you, that justified you engaging war. The second category of justice war theory, just war theory is how to fight that war. So even if it's a just war, does that mean I could go in and kill every single one of my opponents? The answer would be no. So just war theory is very influential, influenced the Geneva Accords and the like, and, and became part of the laws of war eventually and how we understand them. Um, but just war theory is actually a moral framework. It, it just, it, what it, it, it demands that the party engaging in war do everything it can to A, calibrate its war aims to, calibrate its war strategy to legitimate war aims. So in Israel's case, you could say it's to dismantle Hamas. That's the war strategy. And I think a strong case can be made and is made that Israel has every right to try to dismantle Hamas. So then 
the moral obligation is for Israel to minimize civilian casualties within that war aim. Now, um, a lot of people are are treating the war aim as illegitimate itself. Israel has no right to just dismantle Hamas. And they're treating any Israeli military action as unjust. I think that's radical wokeism speaking in a way. You're, you're the oppressor no matter what. So you have nothing you do is morally justified. Um, but I, I do think it, it promotes a kind of the opposite of just war theory. I'll call it moral aestheticism. This idea of confusing what looks bad with what is bad believing that something that looks bad like oh there's a lot of buildings that have been destroyed and people have been killed without doing as my math teacher in high school would have said without showing your work right you're not actually explaining did israel do something morally unacceptable what what did it do and you could you can go through the logic of it okay so there was uh hamas fire from um a medical clinic um the israelis knew it was a medical clinic and they knew there were patients how much protection does Israel have to show toward those civilians and not to kill them in the process of their legitimate war aims? Um, you know, and it's, there's no easy answers to it. I mean, you know, you can start to quantify it. Well, if they only think they're going to kill 10 people, it's legitimate. If they think they're going to kill 100 people, it's illegitimate. But but they're in somewhere in there is the moral struggle that a commander has to go through in deciding whether or not to ask his soldiers to fight back. Um, and then, of course, things like dropping leaflets and ordering large numbers of Palestinians in northern Gaza to go south so you don't they don't get killed in the process. I think that that's very much in line with 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 just war theory. And I think we desperately need that kind of moral framework or else we're, we're, we're left with a bunch of moralizing moral aestheticism masquerading as moral thinking, which it's not. Uh, and 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 there's no way of actually fighting a war under the circumstances. No country would ever fight a war. The interesting thing, though, is it's kind of moralism tends to be aimed just at Israel. I mean, the United States in 2012, um, you know, and, and, and that thereabouts fought a war against ISIS that that caused the death of something like 30,000 civilians in the process. And you don't, you, first of all, most of us don't even know those numbers. We're not hearing them on the nightly news. You know, 23,000 people, according to the Palestinian health officials, have been killed. You know, that was never done with the war on ISIS or any other war I can ever think of. Yet every time Israel's in a conflict with Hamas, all of a sudden that sort of mental, uh, uh, that moral aesthetic impulse sets in the press and it takes over the entire coverage of the story. And so I think we, we, that we've got to get people to start applying moral categories to the discussion on war. The brand of coverage in this war does feel wildly different than any of other coverage, including the U.S.'s operations. Uh, how about the the story of the 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 bombing of the hospital or supposed bombing of the hospital by the IDF that was a few days later debunked? What does that coverage uh, say about how the media is choosing to approach uh, the their their coverage of the war? Yeah. So I'd like to think I'm going to give the most charitable version of this possible. I'd like to think that the average New York Times editor who's been around a long time and knows what he's supposed to do or she's supposed to do in ascertaining a story is taking shortcuts because they're after clicks. 
you know, they don't, they want their story to be the one that everybody's clicking and sharing so that they can show their advertisers. I mean, we're in an advertising model now. And so it favors really shoddy coverage like that because you, you want to be first, you desperately want to be first. And I think the New York times took a lot of horrible shortcuts, unthinkable shortcuts that translated into a kind of blood libel against Israel. So if you say, listen, okay, this looks horrible. I can't prove yet it's the Israelis. The Israelis haven't denied it. The Palestinians, the Hamas health ministry said it was Israel, whoever said it was Israel. So we're going to go with that until we hear otherwise. We'll show a picture that's not of the hospital, by the way, that they even claimed was bombed. And they'll show a completely uh, uh, hollowed out building that had that that wasn't the hospital itself. And pretend without even showing it in the caption that that wasn't the hospital. And they didn't do diligence. They hadn't, they hadn't allowed Israel to really ask itself where, where this happened. And this is a permanent disadvantage that Israel has. It, it, it has to maintain its credibility. It has to actually go and ask its commanders, did something happen here? What happened here? And, and for them to say, no, we weren't even firing that direction. That can take a few hours. And, and um, so it turns out that A, Israel didn't bomb the hospital. B, the hospital really itself wasn't even bombed. It was in a parking lot. C, the numbers that they were claiming, 500 dead, were wildly overstated. I think it was, they, they say it was between 50 and 100 now were, were killed. Um, and, and, and that's all because these media outlets are trying to get maximum number of clicks and because it fits in with a pre-existing narrative. You know, we don't have to subject, we're going to assume the worst of Israel and a lot of this. So that really goes along with that sort of moral aestheticism, that that inability to actually ask and answer tough moral questions around war. Hmm. Final question on, on Israel and the war. What do you think is the most important thing for the moderate world to be arguing at this point, be it if they're in democratic circles and this internal debate in the democratic world, it seems like Biden has taken a stance that even people in his own administration, my understanding that there's staffers who are organizing a walkout um, or moderates who are sitting on a college campus. What what is the overall argument you think that that should be made for why Israel should do what it's doing? Yeah. So first of all, I I want to I want to ease the conscience of some of my Jewish or pro-Israel friends and say, look, we are always going to be fighting an uphill battle. There are fifty some members of Muslim states in the United Nations, and there's one Jewish state. We are badly, badly outnumbered. The structure of the political reality is stacked against Israel and will always be. There will always be more countries voting against Israel in the United Nations than voting for it because of just the number of countries we're dealing with and the number of people from those countries who by and large buy into one, the other narrative. So understand that we're, it's never gonna be easy. Um, I, I think that you know we have to we have to argue that what, what would happen if millions of Americans were not allowed to go back into their homes because they couldn't live in their homes because it was too dangerous? Wouldn't we expect that our government would go and clear the military threat? I think that's the best we can do. I will say though, and I've I've had my moments when I started to worry that Biden was was losing his grip on this. I will say that I think the Biden administration has been by and large, extremely supportive, and not just in those opening remarks, even after he's made some comments that I thought were very unfortunate, you know, using the term indiscriminate force and the like, 
Um, the, the truth is that the administration is trying to buy Israel all the time, that the administration does believe Israel needs to dismantle Hamas, and the, Israel, the administration is trying to give Israel the latitude it needs to fight this war. So I think, by and large, we should be thankful that the administration has held firm. Although, again, you know, how much time that will continue, it's hard to say. You know, I think the United States wants this war to be over so it can go ahead and get into a national election. And it's worried that this could boil over, that there could be there could be unintended consequences, that Hezbollah gets involved in ways that it hasn't so far, and it'll be there'll be an all-out war, and that it'll, that'll it'll affect the economy. So they're they're clearly nervous about this, and they're clearly nervous about what this will do to the progressive base. But I think, given all those political considerations, and the, any administration would have them, I think that they've done a good job and held firm. Hmm. Well, it is definitely a going to be a challenging year given. Uh, geopolitical landscape and then here at home in the, the presidential election. So a lot of conversations will transpire. Th that's my next bucket of questions. And then we'll, we'll take it home with the round of quick fire. You're clearly someone who's very good at having conversations, debates, and doing it with individuals who don't share your point of view. Help us understand some, some of your tactics. I, I once heard you say that instead of saying, I disagree with you, your, your phrasing is, I have a different point of view. And so uh, give us a masterclass on having conversations on, on uh, topics that are perceived as challenging. Yeah, I like, I think I said, I see it differently, but I think I have a different point of view works as well. Um, and the reason is, it, it, um, it, the reason if I see it differently, what are they gonna say, you shouldn't see it differently? I mean, how can anybody say you should you should see things exactly the way I see it? So it, it immediately opens up the opportunity for a conversation. How do you see it differently? Why do you see it differently? Again, it won't always work, but it might get the person who's just a couple degrees to your left or to your right to settle down a little bit and um, and hear you out. Um, you know, there, there's a whole series of techniques of, about, you know, trying. Um, one, one thing that I've done a few times and it hasn't always worked, as I'm saying, would you, especially on something like a social media platform like Twitter or Facebook, you can say, would you be willing to have a completely civil conversation with me for even just 15 minutes where there are no accusations made about the other person, but we just talk about ideas? Now, it puts them in a, if they don't want to do that, they'll immediately get snarky and they'll probably walk and you'll say, okay, that's what I thought, you know, but if they do do that, it gives you an opportunity um, to do it. And I think it shows goodwill that you did it. And it may mean that you're actually dealing with somebody who you can have a conversation with because they were willing to go through the exercise like that. So I think what you want to do is you want to uh, take the ideological edge off the conversation as much as possible. You know, wokeness or whatever we're going to call it tends to, it's, it, it's in a way, it's a critique of the very idea of debate and argumentation. It's saying we know who's in the wrong here. This is all settled. So why should I have a conversation with you? I'm just playing into the hands of your white supremacy framework. And, um, and so I'm not going to do that. I'm going to dismiss you because you are the problem because you and people like you are the problem, that hold the power, that think you can continue to impose your way through these clever rhetorical techniques. So the very act of engaging you actually strips them of that argument. And if, they, if they're willing to do that, it probably means that they hadn't drank the Kool-Aid all the way in the first place. Maybe they drank a little bit of it. 
And so I think that that's one thing you can you can do to try to um, get the conversation in, in, in the right place. Um, and, you know, you can use I statements as you would with your spouse or, you know, significant other, you know, I look at it this way, you know, and I'm one of, one of the other things I try to do when I go to Jewish organizations, I'm a little worried that somebody's going to fly off the handle. I start by saying, I want you to know that I can be wrong about any of this I can be wrong. I have a point of view and I'm here to share that point of view. And you don't have to agree with me about it, but I think it would be wonderful and important that we have this conversation. Now I'm, I can now they, in, in another setting, they may be able to say, screw that. I don't want to talk to you, but they've already voted with their feet. They're in the room. They're sitting at the law firm around the, the table. And I'm now, uh, and I'm setting the ground rules in a way. And I think that, th so they've already accepted their lot in that way. And I think that can be an enormously effective way of, of getting them to listen in a way that they wouldn't. Those are some really good tools there. And your description of the individual who is unwilling to take your offer to have that 15 minute conversations where it's just a discussion on ideas, I think really gets to the heart of why I have been uh, frustrated and, um, and, and really concerned with the uh, woke approach, because to your point, it's, it's settled, right? There, there's, there's no invitation for debate. And that, that just seems, you know, anathema to in intellectual discourse. And that's why I always found that ironically, if there's one spot that that type of thinking should not be so rampant, it's a college campus, because a college campus should be a bastion of intellectual thought. In intellectual thought, the arena is debate. And if this group of people say, no, 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 the debate is done, we are settled, we're just in you know, uh, a, a mode of uh, figuring out how to remedy this, that, that's just a wildly uninteresting place to exist. Yeah, and, and then when you find out that the rest of society is nowhere near where you are on this, and that you're just having a conversation in your little echo chambers, and you could really feel this when those presidents of those universities from from Harvard, Penn, and MIT came, and they, they brought their sort of campus culture to the normies on Capitol Hill and got shot down. No one believed them that they were actually for free speech because they had never been for free speech. And, um, and, and I think that's what happens is that they're talking to themselves and they're claiming that they have all the answers, but you know, 80% of Americans disagree with them. And so it doesn't, it doesn't really work. You know, you mentioned the campus should be a place where we have this debate. I argue that the Jewish community should be a place where we should be able to have these debates. The Jewish community has always bought into this idea of debate and the free exchange of ideas. It's even encapsulated in a Hebrew phrase, machloket l'shem shemaim, arguments for the sake of heaven. It's part of the Talmudic tradition, which is layers and layers of arguments on arguments. Um, going back hundreds of years of rabbis arguing with other rabbis and of previous generations and the like. That's how you, that's, that's conditioned who we are as a people. So to me, this is not, this ideology is not only anti-Semitic, in, in a way it's anti-Jewish. It's it, that it's, it's hostile toward the interests of the Jewish people. It's sort of an attack on the Jewish personality. And unfortunately, too many Jews have allowed that to sway their own thinking. Arguments for the sake of heaven. What a excellent phrasing to pull into this discussion and i one one final discussion here before we go to the quick fire 
the the you know, and we've gotten uh, 57 minutes without uh, discussing it. Anti-Semitism, we, you know, what we're now seeing is that it exists very much pro prominently on the left. For many years, it was just a discussion of anti-Semitism on the right. What is the difference between the two types of anti-Semitism? And which one would you argue is a greater th threat for the American Jewish community? Uh, American Jewish community? Yeah. So anti-Semitism on the left and anti-Semitism on the right both tend to come out when society is facing serious problems. Um, when ideologies, simplistic ideologies and dogmas take center stage that pretend to explain why things are not going so well. And I think um, the fringes become more and more powerful. So on the right, that takes this shape of like great replacement theory that ordinary Americans are being replaced by immigrants. And guess who's doing the replacing? The Jews, right? Um, and on the left, it takes the shape of, you know, there is oppressor and oppressed and the, and the Jews are part of the white oppressor class. Now, Jonathan Greenblatt from the ADL, CEO of the ADL, used to say that anti-Semitism on the right is like a hurricane and anti-Semitism on the left is like climate change. So the hurricane on the right is fast moving. It causes immense destruction in the here and now, but it passes over. Whereas climate change is slow and corrosive. And I think that's how I even saw it. Although I would argue with Greenblatt because he would talk about why the anti-Semitism, why the hurricane was taking place, you know, the great replacement theory and the like, but he was conspicuously silent about the climate change. What were this, the ideological CO2 emissions that were producing the climate change on the left? Um, and so I was challenging the Jewish organizations to say that. But since October 7th is clear that anti-Semitism on the left is like a tsunami, not just like climate change. I mean, we can, we've seen it unleash its full power. And, um, and, and so I, I think that the, the, you know, there, is a, there is a horseshoe, as we like to say, horseshoe theory, that the farther you get to either side of the political spectrum, the more you start to sound like the other. So the far left starts to sound more and more like the far right, and the far right sounds more and more like the far left. I mean, you hear people on the far right who have adopted a really extreme anti-Zionist perspective, for example. Um, so um, I still think anti-Semitism on the far right tends to be more brazen. Anti-Semitism on the left wants to hide itself. It wants to, it pretends to be on the side of the of the good guy of the oppressed. So it doesn't want to be too brazen in the way it expresses itself. But obviously, you know, sharing a meme of celebrating Hamas is a pretty extreme expression of anti-Semitism. Um, so I think that's those are the differences. There's some similarities in structures and some differences in in how they manifest. And what's the biggest threat between the two? Yeah, I think anti-Semitism on the left is probably a bigger threat. Although, look, I mean, it depends on who's in power at the time. Like if so, if a right-wing political party comes to power with the, a certain president that is sort of egging them on, you could see anti-Semitism on the right becoming the bigger threat, particularly if there's a lot of wink-wink going on there. Um, you could, you know, Jewish organizations, and, I, and here's as someone who's a critic of anti-Semitism on the left and spends most of my time there, I, I'll point out that Jewish organizations have invested millions of dollars into in security because of anti-Semitism on the right more than the left. Um, you know, we so there are hundreds of millions of dollars. Now, anti-Semitism on the left is a much bigger threat to sort of disenfranchisement of the American Jewish community because American Jews are of the left and they're not going to automatically go to the populist right or the Trump right. Many Jews won't. 
they're not going to feel comfortable there. So this threatens to make American Jews politically homeless or a large swath of American Jews politically homeless. And I think that makes it a bigger threat in many ways than anti-Semitism on the right. Yeah, I think that's a really good point in terms of the one of the many threats of anti-Semitism from the left is that it could generate a homeless state of the Jewish people with regards to a political party here in the States. And it does seem like there is a significant risk, correct me if you have a different view or share that, that the Democratic Party could have an anti-Israel candidate um, or leader going forward, given the intense uh, pushback on Biden's stance. Yeah, I think that's a danger. You know, we've always asked the question, is the Democratic Party under threat of being Corbynized, like Jeremy Corbyn, will it become like Jeremy Corbyn's Labor Party? And um, some of my friends who agree with me on a lot of things and know a lot about American politics say that blue districts, congressional districts, are relatively moderate places still. They haven't been, they're still producing very few AOCs and Ilhan Omars and more moderates. But what it does do is it changes the pressures on moderates. So moderates start to look over their left shoulder and they start trying to cater to the progressive wing, if nothing else, to protect themselves against the left-wing politics and the aggressiveness of left-wing politics. So it changes the way moderates behave politically, I think is the bigger threat. But I do think it's very possible that uh, a president that's much more hostile to Israel could be elected on the, in the Democratic Party because, you know, primaries are places that elect extremists. And we could easily see that happening on, on the left and we could see it on the right. Look, I mean, I was very troubled by some of Trump's remarks regarding blaming Bibi for what happened um, there. Not that Bibi doesn't bear some blame, but you know, to, to look at, to, for those to be the first, first words out of his mouth, I mean, what do I know could happen under a future Trump administration or some other Republican? I don't think we're immunized against Republican threats to US-Israel relations. I think it's much more likely though in the short term or in the, even the midterm that it's gonna come from the left. So I think that's a real, that's a real problem. And I think Jews have to be aware of that, that, you know, and also the generational shift. I mean, we've seen in the data some really frightening statistics that younger Americans blame Israel 50-50 for the war or for the current situation, even when it's framed in terms of Hamas. So in other words, if you say who's more to blame, Israel or Hamas, it's, it's maybe 52 to 48 uh, Hamas is more to blame. But still, that doesn't give one much comfort. And even, and if you look, you know, will they age out of that? Will they become more like their parents? I don't know. I mean, they're more ideological probably than their parents ever were. So, um, so I don't think we can depend on that. And that is a real problem in the future. Yeah, it does seem like it's a significant problem. The risk, as you said, is, is it appears to be most prominent on the Democratic side. I've got a friend from Seattle, who's in the Jewish community there. And he's been speaking with local officials since 10-7 and has just been absolutely shocked, even for what had existed previously with their level of empathy, uh, apathy or even just full out uh, hatred toward, toward Israel and absolutely no level of willingness to support Israel and the, the Jewish community in Seattle as they're struggling in this moment. So yeah, the pipe, the, the pipeline is, uh, is not promising on, on, on the left side there. Well, I would like to take us home here 
with a round of quick fire. The first question is, would you have fired Harvard's former president, Claudine Gay? You're asking me as an individual, not as an organization. The answer would be yes. Um, would you send your child to an Ivy League school? I'm going to say it depends on the child more than even the Ivy League school. If if the child is a fighter type who wants to go and mix it up and is, you know, very passionate about their Zionism, sure. If it's a kid who's going there to study and will be put upon and feel, feel, you know, bad the entire time that they're there, no. Now, your your favorite person to debate. My favorite person to debate. You know, I like debating people who are about 10% different than me on some of the issues. Um, I, I, there's a guy I'm friendly with I don't, uh, named Angel Eduardo. He's, uh, he's a, you know, a classical liberal thinker. We agree on probably 85, 90%. I think he's a very bright guy. And we frequently sort of debate on Twitter, but, I, but there's, it's always a good spirited debate. And I'm gonna learn from it because, because it's a good spirited, good faith debate, I'm going to get his best thinking. And there are people like that, that, um, that I, I think the best debates are with people who just disagree with a little bit. If you were to rename the word woke, what would, it, what would you go with? I'll go with, uh, I use the term radical social justice because I think people know what that means, but I think critical social justice is the more accurate term. And a lot of, some people are using it. Just the problem is that no one knows what these terms mean. All right. Applesauce or sour cream on your potato laki? Applesauce. Finally, if you had 24 hours in Israel, what are you doing? Visit family. Um, and maybe, and you know, I'm always interested in the political side, so I'd probably go and meet with some Knesset members and journalists and, and the like. I want to get a sense of what the intellectual classes, the chattering classes are thinking and how they're, how they're changing. Well, I hope you get a chance soon to go to Israel and return, see, see your family. I, I know you have a bunch of family there. Um, and I hope Israel's in a place where it's, um, you know, it's peaceful and, Everyone is uh, in a better spot. I want to thank you. I want to thank Brian Siegel. He, he's the individual who introduced us. Oh, and, I, and I want to really applaud you for stepping out so early, uh, being a member of the left-leaning world and taking this, the, the, the risk to really explain to anyone who was able to listen why the progressive world was putting forth ideas that were incredibly dangerous for the Jewish people and their livelihood and uh, ability to flourish in this country. So good on you and modeling all of that. And uh, any final words for the Search for DOS community? No, I appreciate being part of it. If you want to check us out more, I'm at Jewish Institute for Liberal Values. That's J-I-L-V.org. And my Twitter handling, if you want to follow me on Twitter handling or X handle is at David L. Bernstein. Excellent. Thank you, David. Thanks, Tyler. Be well.